Blog Talk Radio. Thank you, Chris Martin, a Coldplay. I always love that intro. Welcome, everyone. Greg Masters here for another episode of This Week in Accountable Care. And we're going to talk Medicare, ACOs, and a roadmap for saying today. My special guest is uh, Marty Ross, JD, who's a principal at the PYA, a consulting firm with offices in Atlanta, Kansas City, Knoxville, and Tampa Bay. And uh, Marty is a trusted advisor to providers navigating the ever-expanding maze of healthcare regulations for deep and wide understanding of new payment and delivery systems and public payer initiatives is an invaluable resource for providers seeking to strategically position their organizations for the future. Marty identifies opportunities and develops realistic plans of action where, on, where others can only see obstacles. So that's a brief background on Marty. Welcome to the broadcast, Marty. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. And glad you can join us on short notice. So I was uh, called to uh, attention um, of you personally in PYA by the recent white paper published on uh, Medicare ACOs, a roadmap, and uh, I was impressed with that. It was clear and to the point and uh, kind of a useful document that people can uh, actually get to size up um, where they are if they want to uh, consider uh, uh, submitting for um, uh, Medicare ACO con- consideration, and that's kind of the clock's ticking here because uh, the deadline for submitting uh, is uh, for the January 1 class of two, 20, 2014 is July 31st, but they've got to get their notice to apply to CMS by the end of this month. So let's put that up front as kind of the uh, timing urgency here. But first up, Marty, tell us a little bit about you and what you do at PYA. Okay. Um, I am what they call a recovering attorney. Um, I spent 20 years practicing in the healthcare regulatory and transactional area. Um, so, you know, it's Stark, the world of Stark, and then I kick back and Medicare and Medicaid reimbursement and OIG investigations and that whole collection of things. And um, the, the group of folks with which I worked, we were really um, – following very closely the debate over health care reform and and the challenges that was going to present to the provider community. And as you track that debate in Congress back in 2008, 2009, into 2010, it became very clear um, that there was a focus on models of integrated care delivery, um, an appreciation that the historical volume-based reimbursement and its attendant regulatory infrastructure um, were really bogging down the system and driving so much cost and driving so much inefficiency. And this this notion of triple aim, that we could improve quality, we could improve overall health, we could do all of that by delivering care more efficiently. Um, my group really saw a need 
for folks who were well-versed in the old system, being able to bridge folks over to the new system and doing it in a collaborative fashion. So rather than continuing on as an attorney that always has one dog in the fight, you know, the attorney always has to be the, the zealous advocate for one party to a transaction, um, our transition to PYA has allowed us to move into a consultant's role. So with the background and experience of attorneys, we're able to advise organizations as they start building structures like accountable care organizations or more robust, you know, physician hospital organizations or developing the clinically integrated network that really is the backbone of so much of what we're trying to accomplish with healthcare reform. So we've been at this for about a year now and it's just been an incredibly rewarding career move for us. And I hope we are having experience with providers and in, in furnishing that bridge over. Uh, between the two worlds. So I, I love your characterization of recovering attorney because uh, uh, what you probably don't know about me is I, I reference myself as a recovering managed health executive. <laughs> <laughs> so, so two peas in a pod today. Uh, there you go. Well, that's- that, so it was probably the right move at the right time because there's an awful lot going up, uh, going on right now, uh, including some major dislocations in business as usual business models. Um, uh, right. So I, I, you you put together a, this piece, the um, a Medicare ACL roadmap. Talk about uh, uh, well, first up, what do you want to tell us about the ACO marketplace uh, from the Medicare shared savings? perspective from the point of view of if they're thinking about submitting it is it too late and and if so what are they what do they need to do first and what's top of mind well anyone that is even contemplating has even been in discussions about participation in the NSSP um, really needs to pay attention to this May 31 deadline um, it's the submission of the two-page very straightforward form the notice of intent to apply. Um, if you do not, if, the, if your organization does not get that submitted by May 31, you're out of line, and your next opportunity to participate is going to be in 2015. Um, submission of the NOI is completely non-binding. You're not bringing any type of obligation to apply or participate in the program onto your head. And in fact, you have the flexibility. If you, if you have the flexibility of getting in line you know, listing your current organization as the applicant, and then down the road you can change that over to a different entity. So I know we're working with a lot of groups that are in the process of forming a legal entity to actually be the ACO participant, but that task still has, you know, it has not been fully vetted and completed. And so they're able to have one of the entities file the NOI and be able to, to go forward with that. Um, and then right on the heels of filing, follow, uh, filing the NOI is the filing of the CMS um, electronic file notice, which is just um, securing an electronic filing number from CMS that enables you to submit the application electronically. Um, again, it's just a housekeeping task, but failure to get that uh, completed by June 10 also kicks you out of line and puts you back to the 2015 cycle. So that is exactly top of mind right now. What's today? Today's May 8th. So we have, well, there's a reason I went into law. I can't do math. But however many days that leaves us to get the application, the notice on file to say that place in line. So the NOI is the notice of intent to apply, and that deadline is firm at May 31st. 
yes, we're here at the 8th. Is that a, a major production to actually complete the NOI, or is it fairly just administrative types of questions that are to be answered? It's very straightforward. It's primarily uh, contact information and a general description of the ACO in terms of who the component parts are. Is it hospital-based? Is it um, collection of primary care providers? Is it FQHCs? They just want to know who the parties to your contemplated ACO include um, and then contact information going forward. So it can be done fairly quickly. So, so let's say... Technical uh, information is a TIN on it, so... Right, so let's say that's fairly straightforward. Then they have essentially another 60 days to get the actual application in. And uh, is that doable for, for uh, what shall we say, newly convened uh, ACOs or, or, or not? Well, it, it's certainly a, um, an, organ, an organizing um, event. <laughs> this is a way to put it. Um, the application has, obviously, I mean, there's, two components to the application. There is the administrative side, which is making sure you've listed all of your participants correctly um, in a manner that's consistent with regulations, as well as the new guidance CMS issued earlier this spring with regard to who qualifies as an ACO participant and what formal agreements have to be in place. So there's that side of the application, which is if you're dealing with several independent entities that have come together for purposes of creating a governing body to run an ACO, that could be a task, getting all those agreements signed, sealed, and delivered. But that's one half of the application. The other is the narrative questions, and I think there are maybe eight of them that ask you as an ACO to describe what your processes are for improving the quality of care um, and engaging in care coordination. And those are opportunities to describe the different systems of how you're going to work together, how you intend to clinically integrate um, the, the various providers who have come together as part of your ACO. And so there's certainly an opportunity in drafting those narratives to have those discussions of what do we want our entity to look like. CMS is not expecting you know, a fully formed, highly functioning organization. Um, they are looking for folks who have made a commitment to each other and have started to have these critical conversations around how can we be accountable to each other, how can we be accountable to our community in the quality of care we deliver and how well we coordinate and deliver care in a patient-centered manner. So it's it's doable, but uh, don't take it lightly. Can can this be done uh, by the applicants uh, themselves, or do they typically will they need help? Um, I mean, it obviously depends on the sophistication of of, of resources available. Um, it's you know if you if you have processes established already, you can describe those. But I think in a lot of instances, it's helpful to have. Um, support and helping you put the application together. So this isn't exactly, you know, this isn't the term paper you can write the night before it's due. This is going to take um, some some planning, um, some conversations among the participants, and some time, you know, dra actually drafting the narrative responses. I suspect that uh, the intention here by CMS was to make this application process part of the process of uh, evolving 
in ACO, particularly the relationships that, that are required for, the, for, for it to actually operate successfully. Right, exactly. And it's real easy, and there's a real tendency to get lost in all of the administrative detail. I mean, we could have a two-hour conversation on how attribution is accomplished by the MSSP program. Um, or we could even have another three-hour conversation on how the benchmarks calculated and what data feeds into that and how the benchmarks adjusted. And that's all interesting and good and certainly has an impact on the economic rewards at the end of the day. Um, we don't spend enough time really talking about the heart and soul of the MSSP regulations, which is the discussion of the key functions of your ACO, and that's that you know critical quality assurance and quality improvement program, um, the establishment of evidence-based med- evidence-based medicine standards and protocols, um, processes for educating and evaluating and um, as necessary, imposing remedial action on participants around those agreed-upon protocols, um, establishing care coordination processes, sharing information electronically, um, having a common you know, patient, patient record to some degree so that you're sharing information about the patient. I mean, all those functionalities are really the, the key heart and soul of this program. Um, and that's the application really drives you to that. The application drives you to narrative um, discussion. And when I'm referring, to, uh, to be fair about this, Greg, we do not have the application for 2014 yet. Um, so I'm referring to the application from last year, from 2013. You, and you never know. We all thought CMS was going to use the same deadline for submission of the application. So I think most folks are expecting the 2014 cycle for the application to be due early September. And, of course, CMS surprised us and decided to move that up a a month. And so we lost a month of the anticipated planning processes. But um, So it's with a a bit of a wink and a nod, I say, that we expect the application to look the same this time around. So uh, the, the, the class of 2014 will be essentially the third program year into this, quote, statutory experiment. But um, let me ask you this. What what are the risks of inaction at this point? Are there any? Wow. Um, I I think we probably have a closing window on one-sided models. Um, You know, right now, if you go into the MSSP program, it's upside only. You can elect only to share savings and not share risk. And, you know, initially when this... I mean, think back, we can even remember when they published the proposed regulation, um, CMS had proposed two years of one-sided, so you would only share in savings, and then your third year you were required to go two-sided so that you would potentially be at risk if you should exceed the benchmark on your total cost of care. Now, when they came back and gave us the final rule, we knew we could spend three years, the initial term of the MSSP contract, you can spend all of that on one side. You can elect to go two-sided because then you have a higher sharings percentage, but something like, what, 96% of current ACOs are all one-sided? Um, but I think that's that narrow. I think we're risking that window closing and that the expectation from CMS will be you come in maybe one, maybe two years of one-sided risk, but you're going to be transitioned over sooner to two-sided risk. Um if you're in a community where ACOs are organizing, the risk you're running by waiting is losing lives. I mean, the, the driver behind the ACO model is securing 
primary care participation that you have sufficient attributed lives to your ACO. That's what the benchmark's built on. That's what your total cost of care is managed against. And more and more of those primary care physicians are getting committed to participating in an ACO, and they bring their attributed lives with them to that ACO. So if you're late to the party, you're probably losing that opportunity to participate with you know, the, the, the primary care physicians that have strong patient panels and are also you know, well-organized in their practice. The third thing you're missing out on by waiting are the waivers. And I just I can't underestimate for you the power of the NSSP waivers. Um, the, the regulations contain broad waivers. Um, the FTC, I'm sorry, the DOJ and OIG have come out and given us strong statements on the waivers. If you are participating in the Medicare Shared Savings Program or if you're even planning to participate in the Medicare Shared Savings Program, you have the advantage of um, not uh, of building financial relationships between the parties that are not in strict compliance with the anti-kickback statute and the Stark Law, as well as the civil money penalty provisions on um, patient inducements and gain sharing. And that's just enormous freedom for a group of providers to actually build relationships that work. You know, I spent 20 years of my life drafting contracts that would comply with the Stark Law and saying the whole time, this just forces inefficiencies into the system where they're not even present. Well, think about the opportunity, you know, between practices to be able to to have referral relationships that otherwise would have been prohibited by law. Or a hospital being able to develop a program with its physicians to reduce costs in the hospital under a gain sharing model. If you've ever done a gain sharing, if you've ever even looked at the gain sharing regulations, they're a monster. And trying to structure a program that makes the gain sharing work is really difficult. But under the MSSP, if you're participating or, again, planning to participate, and you can demonstrate um, that the relationship serves the purposes of the MSSP, those evidence-based protocols, the care coordination, you have a waiver from those regulatory restrictions. And waiver for that to go by and not taking advantage of that, I think, will prove to be costly for organizations. That, I think that's, uh, that, I don't know, that's probably, <clears throat> excuse me, that's probably um, in the market already, but gosh, that's huge, and that that's big. I mean, I, when I when I offered that question to you, I wasn't aware of that. So, uh, gee, if you're really inclined or thinking about it, uh, uh, you should not hesitate. And, and I note on the PYA blog that one of the, uh, one of the entries is, uh, quote, this time feels different, and that's and that's that applies to those of us who have been in this health reform dance now for a couple of decades or more. Uh, that uh, yeah, some would say yeah, ACOs it's just deja vu all over again, uh, and they're a- HMOs light, so it'll never really work. Why bother? But yes, you know what? This time it is different, and for some of the reasons you just articulated, those are are really important ones. So let's. Um, <clears throat> Staying on the Medicare Shared Savings Program theme, let's talk a little bit about the document you pulled together by way of a, uh, a roadmap. Do you want to talk about the impetus for pulling this together and some of the key uh, touch points here that people need to pay attention to? Well, believe it or not, our inspiration was Steve Jobs. Um, it's a great – and actually, on the refrigerator in our break room here in Kansas City, we have a Steve Jobs quote that talks about the hard work of making things simple. 
that anyone can present a problem and appreciate all the complexity and can delve into the complexity. But if you really work at it and you keep peeling back the layers, you can eventually come to the simple, the elegant, straightforward solution. And we really, in, in the world of health reform, that has been our motto, is to keep pushing and pushing until you reach the simple. And what we wanted to accomplish with the ACO roadmap is to you know, free people up from the pages and pages and pages of Federal Register text and, and, and the like, and instead try and present the information as direct and straightforward as we could. Um, certainly, you're going to get down to the minutiae to address a particular circumstance, but it's important before you get to that is really kind of have a, a common world view of what the program is intending to accomplish and then how it is structured. And so I think we worked it and we pushed it and had a lot of collaboration. We had our uh, collaborative process in developing the roadmap, and I think we really got there in, in a pretty straightforward way explaining what the program entails. And so that's, that's what we want people to really, you know, that's the, the whole issue around the Affordable Care Act is just the complexity. You know, you start with a thousand page uh, pages of legislation, and then you know hundreds of pages, of thousands of pages of regulations that have now been published you know, to implement those provisions. You just got to step back and say, what are we trying to accomplish, and, and what are the key elements to this? And, and once you have that common understanding, then you can really delve in. Um, so that's what we're trying to. That's a really unsimple answer. Um, to a question of what we're trying to accomplish with the roadmap. So you've got it organized in three parts, and we've touched on some of these. Part one, formation and operations. Part two, the shared savings payments. And then part three, which I hope we'll touch on before we conclude today, is other ACL options slash private payers. Uh, it's probably fair enough to say that there's enough complexity here to, 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 to not get through in a 30-minute conversation, but uh, you talk about the role the um, application plays in building the narrative and driving the relationships to achieve some of the requirements of clini in a clinically integrated operations, care coordination, and the, and the like, but is, is there... Um, you know, if you weren't going to submit for Medicare shared savings programs in light of some of the incentives to actually do that right now for this upcoming 2014 cycle, uh, wouldn't this make sense just to, to thrash through these issues if you were thinking about a, a commercial contract in the future? Oh, ab absolutely. Um, I, you know, no one can predict, no one has a crystal ball on where the market's going to go. Um, but you certainly can see trends. And one trend is the patient-centered medical home. Um, more and more you're going to see payers on the commercial side either um, providing incentives or practices to become accredited patient-centered medical homes, or they're going to make it a condition of contracting. And that is certainly to the payer's advantage. Um, the payer is going to realize savings if there's that very fundamental patient-centric care coordination originating with the primary care providers through the specialist to the hospital. And it's in, it's, it's critical that the, the providers get on that bandwagon. And 
demand from the payers, hey, this is a joint effort. This is a shared savings opportunity. And if you're expecting to start with a you know, with a primary care provider and, and introduce this patient-centered medical home, then let's talk about payer. Let's talk about the whole community being a clinically integrated network and delivering efficiencies that way. And let's create the incentive for accomplishing that through a shared savings arrangement. And let's learn to do that together, payer. So take your original idea of doing a patient-centered medical home and accrediting that. Let's talk about that now in terms of a shared savings model to incentivize a clinically integrated network. And then is that next step then looking at payments built on population health management models as opposed to just, you know, volumes of services delivered? And so it's all those processes that are part of that development of a clinically integrated network. They're reflected in the ACO regulations, but that's what the private payers are looking for when they're offering shared savings programs as well. And let me ask you, uh, assuming IPAs or independent practice associations really spoke to the majority of managed care contracts that were implemented in the 80s and 90s, is it possible to just take an existing IPA and sort of repackage it for purposes of Medicare shared savings or any of these uh, ACO collaborative contracts that are coming out of the private pay world? Certainly you can build on the relationships, but I think you have to adjust the model and and kind of go back to antitrust basics, okay? Where we started with IPAs, when we created independent physician associations or independent practice associations, whatever that P stands for, um, the idea is that was a response to the antitrust enforcement agents saying, hey, provider community, it is illegal for you as independent market participants to get together and jointly negotiate price-related terms with a payer. And the provider community says, well, how can we get together? How can we organize uh, for purposes of contract negotiation? And the the, the antitrust enforcement agencies answered back and said, we've got three options, okay? You can do a messenger model so that you negotiate the non-price terms and then through the IPA, messenger between the payer and the individual provider's price terms. So the contract is negotiated at a centralized level for non-price terms and then in a more of a coordinated um, but information-blind manner for price terms. That's option one. Then secondly, the agency said, well, then there's economic integration. If you are going together at risk and you have an economic interest in each other's performance, then that would be the basis for joint negotiations between independent providers. And and we would expect to see that the contracting is merely a, is a functionality of your economic integration. Third option, um, provider communities, is clinical integration. And this is where you start seeing the FTC opinion. You know, it starts out with the Statement of Antitrust Enforcement in the Healthcare World, Statement 8 on Joint Provider Networks, or uh, Statement 9 on Multi-Provider Networks. Um, you start seeing the um, Mesa County Opinion Letter or the Tri-States Opinion Letter. Um, but more recently, you have the Norman, Oklahoma Opinion Letter. All of these talk about what is clinical integration and what the expectation the agencies have as to independent providers working together, clinically integrating their operations. So that, again, the negotiation 
of the contract with the payer is a function of the clinical integration as opposed to being a function of setting a higher price in the market. And it's really those relationships we created as IPAs, most of which a lot of IPAs at this point function as messenger models, but they have that underpinning in, in, in trying to create compliance for purposes of antitrust rules. And certainly they, especially those that have, that have looked at and considered clinical integration as a vehicle for joint contract negotiations, and that's exactly the impetus of where we're going with the ACO models. So, again, I guess the long answer is, is yeah, absolutely. These IPAs all should be looking at this option. So so what strikes me is um, uh, it's important to understand that you just can't smear um, a label of you can't smear a label of an ACO on top of a first-generation IPA and think you can comply with this. There's much more to it. But um, I, I was also thinking that, well, gee, uh, you ought to be doing this anyway, you know, whether the Affordable Care Act was passed or not. These are conversations about clinical integration, more efficient delivery system conversations and so forth that are going on anyway in the marketplace. So it's not like you're going to – this is a frivolous preoccupation for you. So <laughs> anyway, um, we're out 60 seconds, so I'm going to uh, cue the wind-down music for the live portion of the show, Marty. Uh, there's a lot to cover in these sessions, and 30 minutes always goes by very very fast. But I want to thank you for your uh, competent stewardship here of these uh, parameters around the, the Medicare Shared Savings Program and what providers ought to be thinking about and especially be mindful of these deadlines that are coming up. So if uh, if they wanted to reach you, uh, how would they? How would anyone get in touch with you? Uh, well, there's always good old email, and it's mroth at pyapc.com. That's, the website is pyapc.com, and um, certainly the ACO roadmap is posted there, as well as the ACO MSSP application checklist. And okay, we have Marty, posted on the blog frequently. Let, let me just say bye now for the live portion and hold on for one minute. Let's go into overtime here a bit. Okay. I wanted to get that in. I just wanted to um, I want, I, I want to say a few other things as well as far as contact. Uh, uh, PYA Healthcare, I believe, is on Twitter at PYA underscore healthcare. You can follow them at Twitter. And then the website uh, is PYAPC.com for more information. And um, sorry to rush you there towards the end, Marty. I, I, we do have that hard uh, live stop, but uh, I want to make sure we get uh, any any uh, concluding thoughts or closing information uh, out there before we sign off today. So uh, sorry to interrupt. Do you want, do you want to pick up no, where no, you left no. off? I think I was done. Okay. All right. So, so I think that it's fair to say it's fair to say that uh, um, we, you know, with these annual uh, admissions into the program and the fact that there's certain things at risk right now, like the uh, uh, the uh, the reduction in the available models and the possible removal of waivers, well, were these waivers time limited, or what was what was the deal there? No, I just think that if you're if you're not in the program, you you can only you know the waiver is available if you well I mean the broadest waiver is the pre-participation waiver, which a year before the application submitted, you can start taking advantage of the waivers. And what's going to happen is again in markets where 
you have functioning ACOs that are taking advantage of the waivers. You know, they just have so much more flexibility in terms of how they're structuring service delivery. And competing against that becomes a real challenge. You know, if I've got if I'm able if I've got a hospital that's got a very robust, you know, clinically integrated network with its with physicians and they're participating in the MSSP and they're able to offer, you know, arrangements that otherwise would be illegal. You know, how do I compete with that as the hospital down the road with no MSSP? Well, I'm still stuck with all the, you know, fraud and abuse and civil money penalty rules that are applicable to me in my relationships with physicians. It's just it's, it's a huge competitive advantage. So if I imply they were time limited, yeah. It's just that you don't want to be the last one to get you know get the advantage of the waiver. Okay, and. Uh, well, one last thing I'll, I'll offer is uh, any kind of newly organized ACO uh, that enters the market, in all likelihood they're going to go up against uh, certainly certainty in uh, Florida, but uh, other markets you're going to go up against uh, Medicare Advantage contractors. And uh, there's going to be an awful lot of risk-savvy and administrative capability that uh, you're going to compete with. So better to figure out if you can survive in this marketplace now than later, and uh, that window is most definitely closing. So uh, with that, let me formally thank you, Marty, for your time. Marty Ross, J.D., Principal over at PYA Healthcare, and we will say thank you for joining us on This Week in Accountable Care, and check out the blog, acwatch.com, for details on this session and uh, future conversations around the accountable care industry. Thanks again, Marty. Take care now. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Craig. Bye.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.